Hello, and welcome to the Gnarly Brains and Growing Pains podcast. This is Episode 1, Perspectives in Developmental Psychology. I'm your host, Andrew Gasson. If you don't know who I am or what I'm about, please feel free to go back and listen to Episode 0, where I talk about my experience working with people with disabilities. In today's episode, I'm going to discuss the five major perspectives in developmental psychology and the major therapies that have come out of these perspectives as well as produce some commentary on their relative usefulness with regards to treating people with neurodiverse brains. First, a a note on terminology. In the bad old days, people used the term disabled to describe people with disabilities. This is not very useful terminology, as it reduces a person in all their complexity down to the factors that are the least representative of their being. Person-first language is preferred, so that people with disabilities is better than disabled person. This term, however, is still medicalized. It is seeing the person through the lens of a disease, something to be fixed. As I pointed out in episode zero, people with developmental disabilities cannot be fixed, but their impairments can be accommodated and their development promoted. Another term, neurodivergent, has entered the lexicon in the recent past. This term is better yet, because it recognizes that people's neurology develops in many different ways, and that some of those ways are not necessarily disabilities. For example, an autistic person might exhibit a heightened number sense like Dustin Hoffman's character in the classic and somewhat problematic movie Rain Man, or a spatial awareness that allows them to draw entire cityscapes from memory. Neurodivergence, then, leaves room to see the so-called divergent brain as having value because of, rather than in spite of, its differences. In my opinion, there is another term that is even better than neurodivergent. The problem with the term neurodivergent is that it implies there is a normal from which the brains of the people with developmental disabilities have diverged to a greater or lesser degree. In fact, there is a great diversity in neurology even between people with so-called normal brains. Everyone in this world perceives, interprets, and interacts with their world in different ways, and it is by degree rather than by type that these differences sum up to a person. The so-called normal brain is a myth. Therefore, the most useful way to talk about the brains of those with developmental disabilities, in my opinion, is to use the word neurodiverse. Of course, there is a point at which diversity becomes dysfunction. I have worked with people whose brain's development is so far from typical that they cannot function in society in any capacity, and in fact are racked with pain due to their impairments. It is certainly difficult to see the value of diversity such as this, and these souls almost always end up in very medicalized situations. However, using the lens of neurodiversity, we can talk about those aspects of neurology that are suffering impairment and how those impairments can be accommodated and promoted to develop, rather than looking at an individual as a whole and considering them different or worse, broken. This view of human brain as an organ subject to huge variation and diversity between people, is relatively new. Certainly, most of the developmental theories we are going to discuss today were created in a time when the brain and its functioning was rather a black box, and the only things that could be known about it had to be inferred through indirect means. It isn't until the advent of neuroscience and the development of machines such as MRIs and, later still, genetics, that a really comprehensive understanding of the brain could begin. So the great-grandparents of developmental psychology are Jean Piaget, in 1919, working through the lens of cognition, 
centered on the individual and mainly focused on how the interactions of thinking, emotion, creativity, and problem-solving abilities affect how and why people think the way they do, and Lev Vygotsky, working in the Soviet Union during the 1930s through a lens of sociocultural development which interprets learning as something that happens not within the individual but between the but in the context of a society because of the iron curtain i do not believe that these men had much contact with vygotsky's work only really becoming known in the west during the 60s and 70s as a counterpoint and criticism to bf skinner's behaviorism i am not going to discuss vygotsky directly but the evolution of his work will show up when we start talking about the psychosocial model. Piaget's cognitive theory posited that cognitive development happens in stages, and that the difference between children and adults isn't the quality of their thinking, but rather there exists qualitative differences in thinking. For him, these stages begin with the sensory motor stage from birth to two years, in which very young children explore their environment with their senses and learn the difference between themselves and the environment. Think of a baby putting everything it comes across into its mouth. Children then move on to the perioperational stage. Children then move on to a preoperational stage from two to seven years, in which language begins to develop, and symbolic thinking begins. Children at this stage are egocentric and struggle to see others' perspectives, and although they are improving with language and thinking, they still tend to think in concrete terms. Think of the kindergartner learning to represent sounds with letters. Next is the concrete operational stage, in which children from the ages of 7 to 11 become much better at thinking logically about concrete events. They understand the concept of conservation, as demonstrated in a famous experiment in which children at this stage, but not previous ones, can tell that a tall, narrow cylinder contains the same amount of water as a short, fat one. Finally, children at this stage can use inductive logic and reason from the specific example to the general principle. Think about upper elementary aged children learning to use math to solve problems. Lastly, children ages of 12 and up enter the formal operational stage, in which they begin to think in deductive terms, reasoning from the general principle to the specific example. They think abstractly about hypothetical problems and begin to think more about moral, philosophical, ethical, social, and political issues. This is the era of the high school student using their representational skills to investigate all manner of subject material. Piaget's work was absolutely central to the development of the modern school system, the division of students into age-grouped classrooms, decisions about what subject matter to teach and when, and the ways children are assessed in the classroom all come from his work. From that work, we also get assessment tools such as IQ tests, which seek to sort children according to their developmental stage. In more recent times, the widespread use of IQ tests has fallen out of favor for many valid reasons, including their narrow definition of intelligence that leaves out factors such as motivation, emotion, and attitude, as well as their necessarily culturally biased nature. The second major lens of developmental psychology I'm going to discuss is the behaviorist school. This was founded by psychological mega-celebrity and all-around boogeyman to rats and monkeys everywhere, B.F. Skinner. Behaviorism was the dominant school of psychology between the 1920s and 1950s, especially in America and the West, and represents an extremely deterministic and mechanistic view of the living world. In behaviorism, the concept of an inner mental world is considered as an unknowable black box beneath serious scientific scrutiny. Instead, 
all behavior is reduced to a series of stimuli, the resulting reactions, and the rewards for those reactions. This leads to associated processes of classical and operant conditioning. In classical conditioning, learning is possible because if you associate a neutral stimulus, that is, something that doesn't automatically produce any reaction in an organism, and a naturally occurring stimulus, that is, something like hunger or physical touch, enough times, the neutral stimulus will eventually evoke the same reaction as the natural stimulus. So, for example, I sing, twinkle, twinkle, little star, and you are my sunshine to my children every night as they get sleepy, and have done since they were infants. Now they feel sleepy when hearing those lullabies, even when they aren't sleepy to begin with, as they have come to associate sleepiness with the song. In operant conditioning, rewards and punishments are used to increase and decrease the prevalence of behaviors. So when a behavior is rewarded by something the organism needs or wants, a process called reward, the behavior's frequency increases. When a behavior leads to a painful or unpleasant response, a process called punishment, the frequency of the behavior decreases. Much of our modern social control works along these behaviorist principles. One reason for policing, for example, is to punish so-called antisocial behavior in an attempt to reduce its occurrence in society. Employers use systems of reward for work in order to entice employees to work harder. In the classroom, behaviorist principles are reflected in the use of reward schedules, token economies, the use of a bell to begin and end class, earning and losing special privileges based on behavior, and many other ways. The primary tool that comes to workers in the developmental disability field from the behaviorist school is the Functional Behavioral Analysis, or FBA. In an FBA, an interventionist observes a person exhibiting dysfunctional behavior and works out the ABCs of that behavior. A for antecedents, things that occur immediately before the exhibited behavior, B for the behavior itself, and then the consequence of that behavior, C. Once these have been identified, the interventionist attempts to change the behavior by either changing something about the antecedents or the consequences for that behavior. So, for example, a nonverbal person with autism exhibits behavior such as lying on the floor and refusing to move. The interventionist identifies that this person exhibits this behavior after biting into an apple. They then consider that perhaps this is a pain response that the person with autism cannot verbally express. The interventionist takes the person to the dentist and has a cavity filled. Then they observe that the person is no longer exhibiting this reaction as frequently. Conversely, the problem might lie in the consequence, whereby the person with autism is being rewarded in an unexpected way for the behavior. Perhaps by lying down, the person with autism is feeling a coolness on the cheek that is pleasantly stimulating to them. The interventionist gives them a cold pack to hold against their face and notes that the behavior has subsided. They can then conclude that the behavior was an attempt at sensation-seeking from the person with autism. The behavioralist lens is very powerful and has given the world of developmental psychology many tools. However, it is problematic in two major ways. The first is that it fails entirely to explain cognition. It doesn't even try. Here we all live in a rich mental world where many internal forces are acting on our psychology all the time, yet behaviorism has nothing to say about any of it. Secondly, there is a huge potential, and in fact historical precedent, of using behaviorist principles to reduce humans to machines and psychologists to the level of a mechanic tinkering with said machines. This can lead to all sorts of ethical and human rights violations. In short, behaviorism does not perceive the essential humanity of its subject. Additionally, there is much research to show that behavior which is garnered or suppressed through conditioning is less than permanent and will dissipate quickly once the reward or punishment regime goes away. 
So for example, students that have been trained for certain behaviors with a reward economy will likely stop exhibiting those behaviors as soon as the reward economy stops being used. Conditioning cannot be considered identical to learning. The earliest attempts to understand the development of the mind come from Freud and his psychosexual theory. This theory has been largely discredited, but the school of psychoanalysis that he started has existed for a long time and has produced many influential theorists and researchers. Unlike behaviorism, any of the psychoanalytic schools accept cognition and the inner world as valid topics of study. In the field of developmental psychology, the primary personality is a fellow named Erickson, working in the 1950s on what's called the psychosocial theory of development. Like Freud and Piaget, Erickson believed that humans develop in stages. Unlike either Freud or Piaget, for Erickson, these stages arise from resolving the tensions between children and their social environment. So for example, in early childhood, between birth and 18 months, children are in a stage where they are learning to feed. In Erickson's view, this stage involves learning to trust that they will be fed when they send out hunger signals via eye contact, crying, and so forth. This trust is opposed to a mistrust that develops simultaneously due to the fact that they cannot always count on parents to know exactly what they want all the time. This conflict is resolved when the child is consistently fed and develops hope that their needs will be fulfilled. The rest of Erickson's psychosocial stages involve conflicts of autonomy versus shame and doubt at ages 2 to 3 and resolves with the development of will. Initiative versus guilt at ages 3 to 5 and resolves with purpose. Industry versus inferiority at ages 6 to 11 and resolves with confidence. Identity versus role confusion at ages 12 to 18 that resolves with fidelity, that is, an idea of who one is that persists over time. Intimacy versus isolation in young adulthood that resolves in love. And finally, generativity versus stagnation in middle adulthood that resolves in care. Personally, I find Erickson's theory to be somewhat lacking. It makes big assumptions about development that do not generalize across peoples and cultures. Additionally, it promotes a purely social view of development that leaves out vital context regarding both the inner genetic universe of the child while also failing to account for the larger social context beyond the immediate family situation. Lastly, it assumes that each stage must be taken in turn, and that development must happen in this very linear fashion. However, there are some valuable therapies that have come out of the psychosocial school. The first and most common of these is called cognitive behavior therapy, or CBT. In CBT, an individual is taught to identify their thoughts and emotions as they arise and identify the links between their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. By changing thoughts, we can change feelings, and by changing feelings, we can change behaviors. So the theory goes. People with developmental disabilities are at a much higher risk for affective mood disorders, e.g. depression, anxiety, and so forth. CBT then can be an effective tool to treat these secondary effects. That being said, the medical model loves CBT because it is a focused and time-limited therapy that lasts up to and until the patient has been instructed on its use and done the focused work. It is not an ongoing therapy, and this limits its functionality in the world of developmental disabilities because, as stated in the previous episode, developmental disabilities are not things that can be healed. A fundamental leap forward in the development of psychosocial theory was made by George Engel in the late 1970s. In this model, the psychology and social relationships of the person are considered as in the psychosocial model, but in addition, the biology of that person is considered necessary for a full understanding. 
This leap forward was instrumental in bringing psychology and medicine closer together. In my opinion, as a worker in the field of developmental psychology, without understanding the biology of a person, it is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to support them properly. The biological component of the model seeks to understand the causes of the impairments that the person is experiencing and the effect that those impairments might have on the psychological development of the person. So for example, a person with FASD is likely going to have a host of biologically based impairments that can span the gamut from problems absorbing vitamins in the gut, attention and cognitive problems in the brain, chronic spastic muscles, or a variety of other issues. These are naturally going to affect the development of that person, perhaps in drastic ways. In order to really understand the psychology of the person with a condition like FASD and how best to support their development, it is absolutely necessary to understand what is happening with their biology. For example, one effect of FASD is that the stress hormone cortisol is present in greater than usual concentrations throughout the person's life. Cortisol is the fight or flight hormone and causes the body to enter a state of readiness rather than relaxation. However, cortisol is toxic to many systems in the body when present over the long term. Therefore, not only is the psychology of the person with FASD affected by these raised levels of cortisol through raised aggression and lowered concentration, they are also suffering from the toxic effects of the hormone over time, which causes their symptoms to become worse as time goes on. Therapies that come to us from the biopsychosocial school are plentiful and diverse, as they seek to treat the person's mind and body holistically. A great number of traditional cultural therapies can be classified as biopsychosocial, including sweats, smudges, fasts, healing circles, talking circles, attendance at powwows and big house, hunting and gathering activities, drum and rattle making, and food harvesting. When I worked at a First Nations school, I was very privileged to see many of these techniques in action, as the school psychologist was a colleague of mine who was very knowledgeable in this field. We recently had a very interesting discussion about how pushing something hard into your hand repeatedly, such as in bone carving, an activity that this colleague excelled at and taught to many of the children with FASD and other trauma-linked conditions at the school, actually triggered the meridian nerve response in the same way as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, allowing a calming of the sympathetic nervous system and a way out of trauma brain. Another approach is called traumatic incident reduction. A big problem for people suffering from PTSD and other associated trauma-based conditions is that every time a trauma is remembered, the trauma is re-experienced and the memory is reinforced. At the same time, as long as the memory of the trauma is suppressed, the symptoms of PTSD will not heal and the afflicted person will continue to deal with a host of symptoms and dysfunctions. The key is to allow the patient to re-experience their trauma but a very, in a very safe and controlled environment and allow the memory to activate and then fade out without activating the fear response center in the amygdala. For children with trauma, the same situation can be reached through play therapy, in which the child plays with toys to externalize their thoughts and feelings. In my opinion, biopsychosocial development theories are well on their way to capturing most, if not all, of the factors that go into development. If they have a weakness, it is that their unit of consideration is the individual. They miss out on the wider context of the culture and society in which the individual is embedded. And, as I've previously discussed, to really understand disability, we must look at how impairments affect a person's ability to live in that society. This is where the most recent advance in developmental psychology comes into play. The ecological systems theory was created by Broffenbrenner in 1979. 
This theory, influenced by all of the previously mentioned theories, sees child development as a complex system of relationships affected by the surrounding environment, from the immediate settings of family and school to broad cultural values, laws, and customs. It can be thought of as a series of concentric rings that place the child in the middle and extends outwards through the microsystem, the most immediate environmental setting uh, to the child, which affects the child, but over which the child can also affect change. For example, family and school friends. The mesosystem contains the interactions between the objects of the child's microsystem that do not have much influence over. The mesosystem contains the interactions between the objects of the child's microsystem that they do not have much influence over, such as the parents' interaction with the school or teachers. For example, if the parents and teachers get along, the development of the child is better supported. Next, the exosystem is the set of experiences touching the child that they essentially have no control over, such as the media or the political climate. Further out still is the macrosystem, which refers to things such as the child's socioeconomic status, wealth, poverty, and ethnicity. This is the idea that the society and culture a child grows up in has an effect on their development. The last ring is the chronosystem, which consists of the environmental changes that affect development and happen over time, major life transitions such as starting school or a parental divorce. Therapies that come out of this ecological model are often used by social and family services, the big one being Ecologically Based Family Therapy, or EBFT, which attempts to provide support and services to address substance-abusing runaway adolescents, family conflict, disengagement between family members, abuse and neglect, parental substance abuse, and parental depression. Okay, so that's a lot of information about the major schools of developmental psychology. But what to think of it all? What is the right approach supporting the development of our neurodiverse population? Simply put, all of it. Each of these major schools contains strengths and weaknesses, and all have the pro produced tools and therapies that can be useful in promoting growth and development. To have a thorough enough understanding of a child with a developmental disability to be able to really make a difference in encouraging their development, workers in the field must understand the child from inside out and top to bottom. This means understanding their interior environment, including their genetics, trauma history, and cognitive development, and the challenges these imply. It also means understanding the home, family, and school environment and the effect these have on the child's growth, as well as the wider cultural and environmental factors at play. We can use the tools of IQ tests and FBAs as well as provide opportunities for cognitive therapies and traditional cultural therapies where trauma and dysfunction abound. We do not have to be locked into a dogmatic approach, but can and should use all the tools and understanding at our disposal to provide the best conditions for development possible. Thank you for listening to the Gnarly Brains and Growing Pains podcast. I've been your host, Andrew Gasson.